Hi, everyone, and welcome to Tea in the Law of Raspberry Jam, a podcast by Victor Sasson and me, Esther Derby. In this podcast, we talk about coaching systems, agile management, culture, continuous improvement, and whatever else catches our attention and interest. And today, we're interested in constraining and deconstraining systems as a way to think about generating patterns and results in organizations. So let's get to it. I had a conversation with Woody Zool the other day. Nice. So we met up and we had conversations and they were always interesting. And we talked about, I don't remember exactly how we said things, but we got into centralization as a theme. And I was asking myself, companies, as they scale, they need to centralize certain things, which is like they need to set constraints. But how do we know that the people who are centralizing or are setting constraints, how do we know that they know what to centralize And so we got into constraints, and Woody said something in the lines with, how do we even know that constraints are effective? And so I asked him, wait, what? Do you mean that we should be deconstraining? Are deconstraints good? And he said, I don't know, but I think I would like to find out, and I think we need to do some testing around this. And this made me think about constraints. Maybe we got it all wrong. Maybe what is helpful to teams isn't when we constrain them. Maybe it's all about deconstraints. So I started thinking about self-selection because I've been a part of several self-selection events and that's gone really well. And is the reason why it's going well that there are clear constraints? Or is it that with those few constraints, we've actually deconstrained the entire system? I think it's a combination. I mean, I think if you have no constraints, you have flailing. And if you have too many constraints, people can't even move. But it's a matter of thinking clearly about what are the constraints that are going to engender the patterns that we want and what are the constraints that are going to get in the way. And then deconstraining. That's where I'm now exploring new thought patterns. Can we ever be without constraints? Because we always have constraints, even if they're tied to our identity Mm -hmm. or our beliefs or our our physicality, our level of strength, our level of health, our height. I mean, those are all constraints of a sort. Yes. And so when you talk about flailing, is flailing the effect of being too constrained rather than being deconstrained? Well, I think about if you don't have clarity about what you're trying to do and you're unconstrained, that is a situation that leads towards flailing. Because people have so many options and each person has their own set of, a, you know, a billion options of directions to go and, and bringing that together into some coherent pattern is super difficult. So I think about an exercise that we do in PSL where teams are given a problem to solve, which is, involves designing a problem for another group to solve. And it has three constraints. And very often, teams go through a period of, well, for lack of a better word, use flailing again until they figure out how to move forward. So the new pattern I'm thinking about, because I've taken your PSL class, and I've, I've been a part of that exercise. Yeah. And with this new reflecting on, is it actually the deconstraining or is it the constraining that has unleashed my ability to participate? Did the constraints impact me in the way that or the group, did that deconstrain us from our implicit individual prejudices about the exercise? So when you set those one, two, three constraints, you're saying that basically nothing else goes. Like this is all you need to consider. So drop everything else that you have, like all preconceptions you have. 
I wouldn't say it goes quite like that because I think people still have their preconceptions and it takes a while for people to bump out of those. I think it would be in some ways easier for people if we gave them, it would be more comfortable for people if there were more constraints. And it also gets to a point where if there are too many constraints, people can't move. But deconstraining yourself of your own assumptions, I think is hard. Which is a part of your class. Yeah. Because you, I'm not going to give away too much. I'm not going to give it away for the listeners who haven't taken it. But that's one of the, I think, major learnings there. We have a lot of assumptions and preconceptions. And if we aren't aware of them, they really limit our ability to participate or lead. Right. And not just in the workshop, in life in general. I mean, part of it is we accept as immutable constraints that are handed down to us. Yes. Which may not actually be constraints. I was visiting a friend today, and I was standing outside the door. There's a door with a door lock, and I was not able to get a hold of her. I was a little bit early, and then someone came, went in, and I said, oh, hi, I'm supposed to meet my friend in here. Would it be okay with you if I join you and come after you and, like, go in with you? And he said, no, I'm sorry, I don't know you. I can't let you in. And so I said, okay. And I understood him. I mean, even if it's minus 10 degrees outside. I, I still understood his point of view. About five minutes later, another person comes in, and I don't ask. And in the moment, like as this is happening, I'm seeing myself constraining myself. So I'm accepting a constraint that I've put on myself. No, she's not going to let me in because this other person didn't. So I don't even ask. Mm -hmm. So we do constrain ourselves in every situation. If I wouldn't have constrained myself, I would have asked her. And there's a big chance she would have said yes, of course. Or like, who do you know? So we constrain ourselves all the time. And when we work with our clients and we ask them questions that can't be answered within the constraints they have, I think shifts starts to happen. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I had a client who was convinced that the reason that projects were later, at least this was what he publicly said, was that the teams weren't accountable. And so he really constrained his problem solving to how do we make those teams be more accountable? And it wasn't the team issue at all. There were a lot of other issues going on. But his problem solving was very constrained by the questions he was asking. And they weren't actually even questions. They were kind of statements disguised as questions. I want to take this further. Like, Is what we need to be doing more, at least, deconstraining, looking at what are the constraints that are emerging Regardless if they're implicit or explicit, how do we remove them? Just remove as many constraints as we can. Because we're good at constraining, but we're not as good at deconstraining. Well, if there are no constraints, then you're in a chaotic state, which can be interesting and entertaining for a while. So, yeah, I agree that we need to really look at what are the implicit constraints, what are the kind of cascading constraints, because in most organizations there are constraints put in place on the steering domain and then the enabling, enhancing domain, and they all flow down to the making domain. And the image I get of a lot of people on the kind of making domain in organizations is of Gulliver tied down by a thousand threads. None of the threads in and of themselves would be enough to hold him down, but there are just so many that he can't move. And so there's these cascading constraints. There are the constraints we assume that we bring with us from past experience. There are constraints that we have from a societal perspective, like the ones you had about asking, will you let me in, is in some ways a societal constraint. You know, we have these safety locks for a reason, and it's to keep dangerous people out. And so there's a sort of societal aspect to that one. So I think we need to pay attention to the constraints and remove them. And I don't think we need to remove them all. No, I don't think we can remove them all. No, I don't think we can, and I don't think it's desirable. 
but I sure think that it would be useful to be more aware of all of these sorts of invisible constraints, these thousands of tiny threads that are making it difficult for people to move, to be creative, to think, to, to be happy, to live. If we remove the constraints, if we focus solely on deconstraining a system, I'm imagining that self-organization would happen more. The less constraints we have, the more self-organization happens. That's in my head. There's a one-to-one mapping there. I'm not sure it's true, but that's what the conversation with Woody, um, that's a seed it planted. Yeah. You know, I think many groups are over-constrained, and I think every group self-organized within the boundaries of its constraints, right? It's just that many, many, many groups of people or teams within organizations are highly constrained. So it may not look like they're self-organizing, right? They may be self-organizing within a very limited sphere if you define self-organizing as their ability to adapt to new challenges and new situations. Yeah. And I agree we need to pay attention to the constraints and get rid of a lot of the implicit ones. And I'm not willing to go so far as to say, you know, get rid of them all. Because I think constraints serve a useful purpose in bounding, right? (laughs) Uh, Izzy's barking upstairs, sorry. She's very loud for such a small dog. Hello, Izzy. Because I'm thinking about startups. As startups, when they get started, at least the successful ones that are able to eventually validate their idea, they have very few constraints in the beginning. And people self-organize. They do lots of different things. There is no talk about, this is not my role. They scramble around what needs to get done, and then they do it. And then as soon as they validate their idea and they have to scale, or they choose to scale, because scaling is a constraint as much as not scaling is a constraint. They're just different types of constraints. But as soon as they choose to scale, they suddenly need to start with the road descriptions and an org model. Well, they don't have to, but they do. I mean, and I think there are a lot of different ways to go about solving that problem of how do you deal with the cognitive overload and the communication needs and the coordination needs as you involve more and more people? I think those are issues that need to be dealt with, you know, if you want coherent action. I think the ways that people go to are kind of a legacy of mechanistic thinking and are highly constrained. You know, you have job descriptions, and you do this job, and you do this job, and you do this job, and everybody does their job right. All of the little factory parts will work together. And I think that's an over-constrained situation. But that's what people know how to do. It's not the only way to go about it. So if you look at nature, and you look at the savanna in Africa, or somewhere where there's been balance before us people came and destabilized the system, Mm -hmm. what were the constraints? Was it over-constrained, under-constrained? And like, how did constraints appear? I mean, because there are constraints, time, day, night, temperature, availability of food, rain, etc. I don't know if the concept applies there because those ecosystems evolve within the limits of the environment that they have, right? So, you know, a rainforest is going to evolve differently than a desert because of the constraints of their environment. I don't think, at least in my mind, the idea of over or under constraint isn't so useful there because it just is, right? And that system is evolving in those conditions. Do we have the same situation or condition in our working environments? It's changing much faster, right? 
certainly the pace of change is different than it is on a natural scale, although that seems to be speeding up. That's the topic for another day. Yeah. But I think there's a blindness to the constraints because people add and add and add and add and add, you know, and not because they're stupid, bad or wrong, just because it's what they've seen done and what they've been taught to do. And they don't necessarily consider the cumulative effect of all those constraints. I often think about it in terms of tightening or loosening constraints. You know, is the system too tightly constrained? Is the system too loosely constrained? Do I need to loosen things up or do I need to tighten them up? Which I think is a very similar concept to what you're talking about. It's just slightly different words. And I think that the words we are using in the industry right now can easily be interpreted as we need to add more constraints Mm -hmm. or clarify which constraints we have. And so we just get this added constraints and constraints on top of constraints and eventually people can't move. And that's when we get very visible conflicts within teams because people have different constraints and they cannot function together. Well, and I think the converse is true. Then when a team is under constrained, they also get a lot of conflict. Yeah. Because everybody has their own idea about what they should do and how they should do it. And there's no external, for the lack of a better word, pressure. I mean, pressure to meet a customer need or pressure to solve a pressing problem. Not like pressure, like, you know, work harder, extract more labor. So then there's a lot of conflict. Okay. So I'm just going to see where this takes us. Because what I'm thinking right now is... To me, it sounds like if you're having a team with five people and they're all taking the team in different directions because they have different visions. To me, that sounds like they have five visions and that's five constraints and they are not compatible. So when you are setting this external constraint of like, oh, it's this thing we should be doing and not those five things you have in your mind, you are deconstraining. You're not constraining. I wouldn't think of five visions as being five constraints. I wouldn't think of it that way. I mean, it's interesting that you think of it that way. I would not have conceived of it that way. No, and I'm not sure if it's true or not. This is where my mind is right now. Mm -hmm. Sure. Individual incompatible perceptions of the world, to me, could be viewed as constraints. Or it could be that... Well, I'm thinking about this. I mean, each individual, if they aren't willing to consider any other points of view or work towards a common understanding, that's on a personal level perhaps over-constrained. We have these incompatible individual. Is each person having their own individual idea about where the team should be going? Is that about a constraint or is it about an attractor, that they don't have a common attractor? I don't know. Could be both. (laughs) I I don't know. This conversation with Woody really changed. I don't know where I'm going to wind up. I just know I'm much more curious in how many constraints are we removing. I'm much more curious about that than I was before I had the conversation with him. Because then I was only concerned about what are the few constraints that we need to apply that would allow us to give them freedom. Which is also another way of looking at deconstraining. You have an exercise or you're going to reorganize or whatever you're going to do. You're going to make a change and really looking at, okay, what constraints are we removing with this change and listing them down. I find that very, very interesting. I'm very curious what would come out of such a conversation. Okay, so how are you deconstraining your teams with this change? 
In some ways, this is a conversation I have a lot of the time when people say, oh, we want collaboration on our team. And then I start looking at all of the ways the team have different boundaries or they have the constraints of their job description and the constraints of their location and the constraints of what they're going to be rated on. And so that's a conversation that happens a lot. How are we going to loosen up some of these things so that people feel like they can actually work outside their job description without being punished for it? Can we make the job description broader? Can we contextualize the job description if it's going to take an act of God to get it changed or the approval of some large number of vice presidents? You know, how can we contextualize it so people feel like if they're a dev, they can do some testing. If they're a tester, they can sit in on a code review. That's deconstraining. Yeah. I think that sort of conversation happens. I think these conversations happen all the time. I just don't think we credit the effects of a team that is able to collaborate better. We don't attribute that to deconstraining. We attribute it to constraining. Well, I guess I think about what the constraints are and choose which ones you're going to remove. And so I guess I'm not hung up on the word deconstraining because I think about it a lot, just in different words. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, we need to find a way to wrap it up. There's no like real point with this. It's just an interesting conversation. And I, I, yeah. Inside the mind of Victor and Esther. What are your takeaways from today's conversation, Esther? I think building awareness of constraints and using them to influence the patterns is one of the keys to working in complexity. And so the more people think about it and become aware of it, the more adept we will become at figuring out which constraints are helpful to a pattern and which constraints need to be removed in order to allow something else to emerge. Yeah. How about you? So the pace, in high pace environments, when I think about my experience, we are better at adding constraints than removing them. And we need to spend more time, I think, focusing on deconstraining, but not to the extent where we get anarchy or chaos which is what you described. And also that it's a delicate balance where we have to, like you said, tighten and loosen and also distinguishing between constraints and attractors. Another takeaway is that I'm not done thinking about this. Oh, neither am I. And maybe we should invite Woody to talk about this. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and always a pleasure talking to you, Esther. Likewise. Likewise.